morning, Gospel Hope. And it is good to be back with you once again and to continue our series, as Rod said, in our place. And today, this is not an overstatement, today I think we get to the central event in human history, the central event in, in Christ's story, namely his substitutionary work on the cross on behalf of anyone and everyone who would ever dare to put their hope in him. So I just pray that God would help us to with fresh eyes see the glory of the Christ who died in our place. So let's pray once again and ask for the Lord's help and he would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in his law. Lord, we need you. We sing your praise this morning already. And I pray that as we open your word that you would meet with us. Would you expose our hearts to the truth of the cross? Would you grip us in an unusual way by what Christ has done on our behalf? Lord, help this truth to really penetrate us, to change us, to challenge us, to shape us. Would you come in your spirit's power today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the name John Havlicek? How many of you have heard that name before? Okay, maybe about like 10%. Let me tell you who John Havlicek was. He is one of the most decorated basketball players in NBA history. This Hall of Famer, get these stats, he won eight NBA championships. That's a lot. Eight NBA championships. He was an all-star 13 times. He was on the all-NBA team, which means at his position, he was considered to be the best player at his position 11 times. And he is listed on the 50 greatest players of all times. By every standard, John Havlicek was an incredibly successful basketball player. But here's the interesting thing about old Mr. Havlicek. In his entire illustrious career in the NBA, John Havlicek never started a single game. In other words, when the game started, John Havlicek always started sitting on the bench. And so today, with little debate, this man is considered to be the greatest substitute in all of sports history. Now, if you're familiar with sports at all, a substitute is somebody that doesn't start off in the game, right? And they usually don't start off that way because they're not as good as the other people. And then at some point during the game, they substitute in and take the place of somebody who is already playing the game. And usually when you bring in a sub, it's kind of you take a step down. But Havlicek kind of broke that mold. When you would bring Havlicek into the game, it was as if you were bringing your best player into the game. But as great as the achievements of this sub are, they are as nothing when compared to the substitute that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, John Havlicek was just a substitute for the Boston Celtics in a trifling little game. But when Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again, he was the substitute that rescued the human race from their fallen and desperate condition. So here in Luke 23... We are recorded or told the story of Jesus taking the place 
of sinners like you and I on the cross. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is very simply this. Jesus is the ultimate substitute. The concept of substitution is, in fact, emphasized throughout the Bible. It is one of the major themes of the entire scripture. We're going to put some verses up on the screen here. And I want you to just follow along and see this theme going out. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died, you say it, for us. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Christ Jesus gave himself, that one's in the middle, so you got to be quick on your feet there, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse number 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life. Do you see it? It's everywhere. This idea that Jesus came and lived and died, dare I say, for us. To put it plainly, Jesus came to earth to be our substitute. And I don't think I'm going too far to say this. The substitutionary work of Jesus is at the heart of the Christian message. You simply cannot comprehend the Bible You cannot get what this book is about unless you understand deeply the idea of Jesus in my place. So if you want to know what this book is about, I would recommend this morning you put your theological thinking cap on and look carefully as Luke walks us through chapter 23 and tells us the story of Jesus dying in our place. And that's simply my point this morning. It's simply this. We must see Jesus as our substitute. That's it. That's where we're going. We have to see Jesus as our substitute. And fortunately for us, this is not an idea that the Bible seeks to obscure at all. In fact, it is of such significant tenet that there are numerous places in the Bible that lay out the substitutionary work plainly. We just looked at several of them. And here in Luke chapter 3, it's told kind of in a narrative form. It's told the story of the crucifixion. And embedded in this story is the idea of substitution, of Jesus dying for us. So that's where we're going this morning. I want to show you this morning several aspects of the ultimate substitute, Jesus Christ. You ready? You ready? Buckle up. Okay, so I got four things this morning that I want to show you about the substitutionary work of Jesus. Number one, the ultimate substitute was sinless. In Luke chapter 22, which Rod preached for us last week, it closes in a pretty dark place. Jesus has been betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his disciples, and arrested by the religious authority. And then Luke 23 opens up with Jesus standing in custody before Pilate, the corrupt Roman governor of the day. Pilate hears the religious leader's charges against Jesus, and and he's 
he's not buying it. Luke chapter 23, verse number 2. We found this man. This is the religious leaders talking. We found this man leading, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. So then Pilate starts questioning Jesus himself, and he sees nothing worthy of condemnation in Jesus at all. Verse number 4 of chapter 23. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Nevertheless, Pilate was a shrewd politician. And not wanting to upset unnecessarily his constituents, he sent Jesus to Herod, a visiting dignitary. Herod had heard stories about Jesus and his miracles and his teachings and all that he wanted to do. So he was happy to listen to Jesus. But when Jesus did not perform for Herod like he wanted him to, then Herod treated him cruelly and eventually sent him back to Pilate. Verses number 8, 9, and 11. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but then made no answer. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So Jesus didn't do what Herod wanted him to do. So Herod had him beaten and mocked. And he threw on this robe to make it kind of add insult to injury, if you will. And back to Pilate he goes. Pilate appears, or Jesus appears before Pilate a second time, and Pilate again insists that Jesus is innocent. Verse number 14, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Pilate's starting to get fed up, basically. He's like, why do you keep bringing this guy back to me? And in spite of this, the religious leaders remain resolute in their opposition of Jesus. But again, Pilate insists on his innocence one more time. Verse number 22 of Luke 23. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. So three times. Three times in this passage, Pilate asserts that Jesus is guilted, I, or, or guiltless. I find no guilt in this man. I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. I have found in him no guilt deserving death. So what's going on here? I mean, why does the author of Scripture emphasize this idea that Pilate is insistent on the guiltlessness of Jesus? The answer to this question is both extremely simple and deeply profound. To put it plainly, Jesus had to be guilty to take away our guilt. Jesus had to be, I'm sorry, Jesus had to be guiltless to take away our guilt. Does that make sense? Let me give you an illustration of that. Suppose... Um, Suppose I was on death row for a crime that I did commit. Okay, let's just suppose that was reality. And, and, and there sitting next to me on death row is my friend Daniel here. And Daniel is as well guilty of the, of the crimes for which he's been accused. And here we both sit on death row. And Daniel's about to be executed. He's going to get lethal injection. And I look over at Daniel and I'm like, hey man, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I will take your penalty for you. I will serve your term. I will take the execution in your place. This would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? That's a 
foolish statement. Why? Because I could not die for Daniel because I have to die for who? Me. I have my own condemnation that I have to take care of. I can't take care of somebody else's condemnation when I myself am condemned. Uh, Daniel's not on death row, neither am I. Okay, just just for clarification there. None of us are here uh, on death row this morning as far as I know. The, the idea is simply this. In the same way, in order for Jesus to bear our sin, he had to be sinless. And all Pilate is doing is pointing out what God had ordained before the foundation of the world. I find no guilt in this man. You know why? Because there isn't any in him. He's perfect. And that is why the substitutionary work of Jesus is so sufficient. Christ could not bear our penalty if he had his own penalty to bear. And praise the Lord, he didn't have any penalty to bear. The New Testament makes a huge deal out of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous, that's Jesus. Righteous is just another way of saying perfect, the perfect one. For the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. In a sense, the idea was thousands of years in the making. You remember in the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament before, in order to kind of deal with their sins, at least temporary, temporarily, what did the Old Testament people have to do? They had to offer what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So they had to bring a lamb or a bull or a goat to the temple. And, and symbolically, what would happen is they would lay their hands on the head of that animal, and then the priest would take a knife and cut the throat of the animal while their hands are on the head to represent your sin is being transferred to this animal, and they are taking the penalty that you deserve. But the thing was, you couldn't just bring any old animal to the temple, right? It had to be, the Bible consistently says something like this, it had to be without spot or without blemish. You couldn't bring your leftovers. You had to bring, in one sense, the perfect animal. Because the animal couldn't take its own sins. It had to take your sins. So for centuries and centuries, these Jews had been taking these sacrifices to the temple to point to one day that there would be a lamb, a perfect lamb, without spot, without blemish, without sin, who would die and take the place of sinners like you and me. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, For you know that you were redeemed. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. The implication is this. You can trust in the sacrifice of Jesus because as the sinless son of God, he alone was qualified to die in our place. Jesus did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. I've got sin. I can't pay my own sin and still go to heaven. I need a substitute. And that substitute can't be Rod, as good as a guy as Rod is, because he is sinner. Ask Carrie. <laughs> Carrie, in fact, why don't you come testify here for a while? I, no, I'm just kidding. Rod's got his own sins to deal with. Your pastors can't die for you because we are sinners. But Jesus can die for you because he lived the life we should have lived. He never defied his father. He always did the things that pleases God. Put your hope in the sinless substitute.
It matters that Jesus never sinned. Second, Jesus' substitution was not only sinless, it was also sweeping. Here's what I mean by this. The substitution of Jesus had far-reaching implications. It wasn't just kind of like an isolated issue. It had far-reaching implications. This is pictured for us in the curious case of Barabbas. Say that name with me. We're going to say it a whole bunch of times. In Jesus' day, it had become a tradition for the Roman governor to release a prisoner during the Feast of Passover. That's the time when Jesus is crucified. So Passover is going on, and Pilate had got accustomed to releasing to the crowds a prisoner that had been condemned. It was kind of like a, you know, kind of like the pardon of the turkey that we have in the United States, but it was a real person being released. Pilate saw this as an opportunity. Oh, they won't listen to me and when I say Jesus is not guilty. I'll just release him. I'll acquit him by giving him to the crowds. So Pilate picks the most notorious criminal named Barabbas and gives the crowd the choice between releasing this bad dude or releasing Jesus. But Pilate's plan was immediately thwarted for the crowd cried out, verse number 18 of Luke 23, away with this man. And release for us Barabbas. And here's the thing. Barabbas was not some political prisoner or a white-collar criminal. He was basically a violent terrorist. Look at verse 19. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And in spite of this man's deeds... The crowd persist in their preference of him over Jesus. Verse number 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept on shouting, crucify him, crucify him. In the end, Pilate caves into the pressure of the crowd and he lets Barabbas go. Verse number 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So why does the Bible include this detail? I mean, why is that little vignette there? What does Barabbas have to do with the substitutionary work of Jesus. I think the gospel writers, and and by the way, it's included in more than just Luke's gospel. I think the gospel writers highlight this account because they want us to see something incredibly profound, namely this, we are all Barabbas. Think about it for a moment. All of us, like Barabbas, have defied the rule of the true king. All of us, like Barabbas, were deserving of punishment. All of us, like Barabbas, could do nothing to rescue ourselves. And all of us, like Barabbas, wonder of wonders, miracles of miracles, can be rescued and set free through the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Quite literally, Barabbas' story is this. The innocent dying the guilty's death so that the guilty could live the innocent's life. That is the story of Barabbas. And friends, if you trust in the work of Jesus, this can be your story too. You see, sometimes we think that on the cross, God dealt with our sins. And this is wonderfully true. 
But it's actually only half of the story. Jesus did more on the cross than just kind of make us morally neutral. Jesus did more on the cross than just pay the penalty that we deserve. He actually made us positively righteous by his work on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, what does that mean? Well, I, I need some help this morning to kind of show you. John, come on up here. Mandy, come on up here. All right, yeah. You sit in the front, you get in trouble here sometimes, right? So, okay, John, you go over here. Mandy, you go over here. Okay, so here's how it works. Um, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let John be humanity here, okay? That's fitting because it's a big old sin, right? Yeah, we'll just let John be the sinner. So... We often think about what Jesus did on the cross like this. Jesus, okay, Mandy's going to be Jesus, takes our sin on him on the cross, right? And then Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve from God. And is that true, yes or no? Absolutely. That is a wonderful truth that on the cross, Jesus became our sin bearer. But, but there's something actually more that happens because Jesus was not sinful. He was what? Right. Righteous. And so not only does on the cross Jesus take our sin, but something else happens. When we trust in Jesus, he takes the sin and we get what? His righteousness is transferred over to us. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Double imputation. In other words, Christ takes our sin, we get Christ's righteousness. We are all Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. We all had the sin. We deserve the wrath and judgment of God. But instead of receiving that, Jesus took the penalty that Barabbas deserved on the cross, right? He was the one that was supposed to die, but Jesus died in his place. But it wasn't just like Barabbas' um, his, his penalty was transmuted. He got to go free. He got to walk free. Why? Because Jesus took his penalty and he got Jesus' life. That is our story, brothers and sisters. We get this interchange. Jesus becomes sin and we become righteous through the work of Christ on our behalf. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Look, what this means is this. Through Christ, you are both forgiven, that's awesome, but you're also righteous. It's not like your bank account is now at zero. There is an infinite account balance in your checking account. It's as if you went from being grossly in debt to fat and rich, not just zeroed out. Jesus took what you deserved and gave you what he deserved. That is the beauty of the substitutionary work of Jesus. And it's, it's kind of like this. Who's got some glasses this morning? Willie, can I use your glasses real quick? It's kind of like because of that, God looks at us through Christ-colored lenses. You know, if I put these on, ooh, wham, Willie, Willie, okay. Well, if I put these on, 
everything is affected by that. I'm about to fall off that stage. I'm going to take a step back. (laughs) If we've trusted in the work of Jesus, and here is old sinful Rod, but he's trusting in Jesus, God puts on those glasses and says, hmm, look at that. Yeah, man. (laughs) I don't see any sin anymore. All I can do is look at him through the lens of Christ. And I see the perfect righteousness of my son. Look. If you put your hope in Christ and Christ alone, God can no more disown you than he can disown Jesus Christ himself. He died in your place. I told you it was sweeping. It changes everything. Changes everything about the way you view yourself and about what you view that Jesus did on your behalf. Brothers and sisters, we must see Jesus as the sinless and sweeping substitute on the cross. Third, the substitutionary work of Jesus was shameful. So you might hear what I've said so far and be thinking, wow, that is awesome. I mean, really, it really is awesome. But Ryan, you don't understand my situation. I mean, you don't. I just can't see how God could possibly love me. Maybe you feel this way because of things that you've done. You've got a lot of skeletons in your closet, right? Things that even now, when you think about them, you are still embarrassed about. Maybe it's because of things that have been done to you. Maybe you've been victimized or marginalized or treated with contempt so much so that that this just halo of shame walks around in your life with you. And you you just can't see... It's true, it's true enough, but it can't be true for you. Listen, whatever the case, whether it's what you've done or what's been done to you or a combination of both, if you have ever felt unlovable, then there is good news for you in the substitutionary work of Jesus. Look, although Christ could have laid down his life in any number of ways, he chose to sacrifice himself in one of the most scandalous ways possible. First of all, Jesus was crucified. And although today we wear a cross around our neck or we put it out on churches and it's a sacred religious symbol, it was not the case in Jesus's day. In fact, one theologian says it this way, crucifixion was humiliating It was so humiliating that the Romans who specialized in the art of torture assured their own citizenry that a Roman could never be crucified. Second, Jesus died publicly alongside of criminals. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away and put to death with him. Jesus was not treated as a prisoner of state or even a captured enemy. He was executed in the most undignified of manners. Third, Jesus was stripped, and the soldiers gambled for his clothing. Luke 23, verse 34, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Basically, they were shooting dice to see who could get the clothes of Jesus. So as Jesus hung on the cross, 
he was shamefully exposed. Finally, as Jesus gave himself up, he endured mockery on every side. Verse 35 of Luke 23. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, one of the criminals, I mean, even the criminals who are being executed alongside of him are getting in on the act, who were hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and protect us. It's as if Christ embraced the most dehumanizing, shameful death imaginable. Why? I mean, why couldn't Jesus like have just quietly died in a corner? Why did he let all this stuff to happen? Why did God orchestrate that Jesus would die in such a shameful, scandalous, humiliating, dehumanizing way? Why? I think it's simply because of this. The cross demonstrates Jesus as the bearer of both our sin and our shame. Sometimes we talk about the idea that Jesus died for our sin, and that is true. But Jesus also died for our shame. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and they find out they're naked, and it says they were naked and what? So what do they do? They go get some fig leaves. Stupid. Like God's going to be like, mm, fresh threads. They get fig leaves and try to cover up the shamefulness for their sin, right? But what does God have to do? He goes and he kills an animal and he covers their shame. That was just to point forward to what Jesus would one day do. He would come and not just take away your sin, but he would take away the shame associated with that sin. That would be all under the blood of Christ. Jesus died to make you shameless. Prophet Isaiah said it this way, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom mid hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, and with his wounds we are healed. So a failure victimization, discrimination, violence, abuse, loss, or death has cast its long shadow on your life. The Savior who is acquainted with shame offers you healing. Listen to me carefully. The Savior sees you. He knows you. He knows you. And he does not flinch. He's not repulsed by you. He's not turned away by you. He sees you. He knows you for your very core, and he does not flinch. There's some wonderful accounts in the New Testament about Jesus' dealing with the lepers. Remember the lepers in the New Testament? Leprosy is what we today know as Hansen's disease. It was, a, it was a condition of the skin that basically rotted various parts of your body. Usually it would start with your fingers and toes and noses and ears, and it would work its way in. And if untreated, it'll kill you. Well, when somebody got leprosy in the Old Testament or in the New Testament era, not only, not only did they have to kind of endure the pain, but they were isolated. It, it was basically they were, they were separated for medicinal reasons from the rest of the community so it wouldn't spread. 
And when the lepers would come around, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to live outside of the city, kind of on their own, this meager existence of separation and isolation from everyone else. And if you happened by some way to like touch a leper, you were then unclean. It was their uncleanness infected you. And for a season at least, you had to be unclean until you were declared clean by the priest. And then Jesus shows up. And these lepers are around. And, and instead of saying, stay back, stay away, Jesus calls them to him. Come here. And then Jesus has the audacity to reach out and touch the unclean people. Usually what would happen is what? Jesus would then be infected by their uncleanness. Their uncleanness would pollute Jesus. But that's not what happened. The cleanness in Jesus was so great that when he touched the unclean, the unclean became clean. It flowed the wrong way. It usually goes from uncleanness to cleanness. But in Jesus, it went from cleanness to more cleanness. Jesus' cleanness trumped the uncleanness that is present in those lepers. Listen, and he trumps the uncleanness in you. Some of you have this shadow that hangs over your life. Because of something you did or something that was done to you in the past. I want to tell you this very plainly. There is no uncleanness in you that is greater than the cleanness in Jesus. Jesus' cleanness trumps your cleanness, uncleanness. And that's why he hung on the cross naked. To say, I'm just not taking their sin. I'm taking their shame. I'm taking their mess and I'm going to clothe them in my righteousness so that they will be clean in me for all eternity. Look, I don't know why you feel worthless or dirty or unloved or ashamed, but I want to remind you this morning, on the cross, Jesus put shame to shame. Trust in his shameful substitute on your behalf. Finally, the substitutionary work of Jesus was sufficient. As Jesus breathed his last on the cross, Luke records for us something that happens across the city. Look in verse number 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's kind of another little aside that's happening. This is not even happening where Jesus is at. It's cross town in the temple. The curtain tears. This curtain refers to a thick divider that separated the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. So why is this a significant detail? To answer that question, you need to understand a little bit about the temple structure itself. The temple at Jerusalem was divided into a number of concentric courts and chambers, which increasingly restricted access as you went further and further in. On the outside of the temple, it was called the court of the Gentiles, which any non-Jewish people was allowed to go. So anybody and everybody could come in that. And then it narrowed with what was called the court of the women. And then you had to be a, a Jewish person, so women were allowed to go in there. And then you had the court of Israel, which is where the the heads of the Jewish household would go, like I told you about earlier, and they would lay their heads on the sacrifices. That's where they would pass into. 
And then in the temple itself, there was a place called the holy place, which only the priests were allowed to go. And then inside of that, there was a place called the most holy place, where only the high priest was allowed to go once a year. When Luke refers to the curtain here, he's talking about a thick, about five inch wide divider that separated the most holy place where the high priest went from the holy place where the priest went. And essentially, that thing tore from the top to the bottom. The temple structure was basically intended to say this, keep out. You can't get in here. It was basically like a big old no trespassing sign. You can't just roll up in here to talk to God. In fact, some of the priests, when they would go in there, they would wear like bells on their garments because sometimes they wouldn't do it right and they were dead and you had to pull them out. Like, it wasn't like just approach God willy-nilly, however you want to. Keep out. No trespassing. And then over on the other side of Jerusalem, Jesus dies on the cross. And this gigantic divider. Think about the big things like, like in a gym. You know what I'm talking about? That separates a gym. Think that. And from the top to the bottom, it tears. God himself rends that thing. Why? God was basically making a theological statement. He was saying this, you now have access to me. You can now get to me before I was separated from you, before you were cut off from me. But now through the work of my son, when he dies on the cross at that very moment, when Jesus breathes his last, the father says, come on in. You now have access to me through the work of my son. Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of bulls or goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Every year, that high priest had to go in and offer a sacrifice, and it was good for 365 days. Then they had to go back and do it again. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year, ad nauseum. But Jesus said, one death is all it takes. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus lays down his life and the temple is torn and now the doors are kicked open. Listen, here's the implication. It's very plain. All who trust in Jesus have access to God. Everyone. If you trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, if you are black or white or rich or poor or Republican or Democrat or old or young or immigrant or native. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your family history is, what your church background is, what your upbringing is, what your past is, or what your current situation is. If you trust in Jesus, his work is sufficient for you. The curtain has been torn. There is a way to God for you. Listen, salvation is not based on what you have done. It is based on what's been done for you. Jesus's work is sufficient for anyone and everyone Anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in that sufficient substitutionary work. Jesus died for those who would trust in him. Just trust in him. Trust in him. 
He holds out his hand to you right now and says, I will be your substitute. I will take your place and my work is enough. No matter what your story is, his work is enough for you. The application for today is very simple. Will you trust in this substitute, the ultimate substitute? Will you put your hope in his work? Will you have your confidence for a relationship with God in the one who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died? In his kindness, God has given us a way to consistently remember the work of Jesus in his place, in our place. It's called the Lord's table or communion. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are reminded that Jesus gave his body and he shed his blood for us. For us. So I can think of no more appropriate way than to conclude the message in this way today. We want to celebrate the Lord's table today and remember that Jesus took our place. Our team is going to come forward right now. And at Gospel Hope, here's how we do it. When we take the Lord's table, we come forward, we take the bread and cup, and then we return to our seats. When you go back to your seats, we'd encourage you to pray with some of those around you. Then I'll come back here up in the front and I will kind of close us out and we'll eat and drink together. We'd like those in the back to kind of lead us off in just a moment. If you can make your way up to the front and we'll just kind of go from back to front so that we have organization here. Look, if you have trusted in Jesus as your substitute, if your hope is in the Lord, you can all stand with us. That'd be great. Then we invite you to partake with us. Use this time to worship the one who died for you. Let as you eat and as you drink, as the Bible says, be a remembrance, a memorial of what Jesus has done to rescue people like us for our sins. Worship the Lord. Exalt him by eating and drinking and giving praise to the one who was in your place. Man, if you've not trusted in Jesus, though, We'd invite you not to participate, not because we wouldn't love for you to do so, but the Bible is pretty clear about, it says that this is something that only those who have already trusted in Jesus should do. But if you'd like to learn more about this substitutionary work, then Pastor Rod and I will be right down here, right down in the front. If you'd like to talk to us, we would love to have a word of prayer with you, to talk to you, to answer any question that you might have about the work of Jesus in your place. Or for that matter, you can just talk to some people that are sitting around you. They'd love to talk to you as well about what Jesus has done as our substitute in our place. Whatever the case, whatever the case, let's celebrate that there is an ultimate substitute. That he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he took our sin, he took our shame. And if we put our hope in him, we're not just sinless, but we're righteous. We're clean. And God sees us through the lens of his son. Let's worship the great God who sent his son to die on the cross to be the substitute that we desperately needed. Let's pray together and the worship team will lead us as we sing and then you may start coming forward. Lord, thank you so much for the work of Christ. I pray that this would be an act of worship on our part as we celebrate what he has done for us. In his precious name we could pray. Amen.